Hello. How are you doing? Good, good. I wanted to say welcome back. I Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. I saw the post. You guys have fun. And then it was encouraging that you gave us a summary. So you was like uh, part of that. Yeah. So I did the Netherlands one for the church, and then I posted on my own blog about. That's okay. Okay, you should have a you should have a handout. If you don't have a handout, uh, Crystal's got some there, I think. So it should say bucket theology, how God organizes our devotion. There should be a little picture of a bunch of buckets in a row. And I was gonna bring a well, I actually have a bucket in the truck that I forgot, and I just—I well, guess it's not that serious. I didn't really need to bring it inside, but that's the idea as as we're going to talk about buckets tonight. So, is everybody just kind of getting settled there? Jared is passing out pens. We also have people online in internet land, so welcome on the internet. Um, that's what the kids say. We'll see you on the internet. Um, what? Kids at our, our house say that. I, maybe I'm 
I've heard him say that. I've, maybe they don't say it often. I've heard him say it once or twice. It sounds cool. I'm trying to be relevant. Anyways. Okay. Well, uh, you, can, you can go ahead and get settled. If you're coming in, that's great. We're just going to get started. My name is Clint Humphrey. I got to keep introducing myself because I've been away for a while. And uh, tonight, what we're going to do is begin a series of studies where we're going to look at what I call buckets. Uh, buckets, that is uh, buckets as in categories, categories of theology. And the subtitle of this bucket theology that we're going to look at is how God organizes our devotion, how he organizes our devotion. There's chairs over here in the corner here. Uh, there's some in the back. And I'm there's actually more people than I expected, so this is encouraging. Some might have to be up in the spitting row here. Um, and Jared is getting another table out. Now, this is all, this is all preliminary because I'm going to pray here in a minute. But why do I call it bucket theology? Well, it's maybe not even original to me. I heard Sinclair Ferguson once say he was he was talking to a guy and he was asking him about what was he learning in the Bible. And the guy said, I've been going through the book of Ephesians. And Ephesians is so awesome. It's such an awesome book. Ephesians is so amazing. And after the, saying this, Sinclair Ferguson asked the guy, he said, so what is Ephesians about? And the guy said, uh, well, uh, it's really, really good. It's, 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 it's so awesome. But uh, well, what's it about? Well, I, he, uh, he couldn't quite articulate and summarize what it was about. In other words, he didn't have any buckets. This guy didn't have any buckets. He didn't have any categories to put things in. He didn't have anything there. Um this is wonderful, friends. You're coming. If you're coming in, don't feel bad. We just didn't expect anybody to show up. So it's great. <laughs> so it's awesome. So we're just getting some more chairs. Guys, get some more chairs, get some more tables. If there's a couple of guys that want to help out, go get chairs. You can. And we're going to have to bring some chairs down. Thanks. And I'm just going to kind of stall, basically, while everybody gets sorted here. I just didn't expect this many people. So I'm very encouraged at this point. There's a few here. There's a few here up front, or you can steal these chairs and put them over there for now, Jared. Nobody likes to sit right in front of me. So while the rest of you are watching everybody come in awkwardly, let me ask you, what is the term or terms that are used normally to describe bucket theology? What kind of theology are we talking about when we talk about this bucket theology that I've 
introduce. What would be the other term or terms used? Someone. Got to be nice and loud. Systematic theology. Systematic theology. Oh, that sounds really hard. That sounds very intimidating. That's why I call it bucket theology, because it sounds less intimidating, hopefully. So bucket theology is systematic. It's a There's an order and an organization, and it's a way that we organize how God is revealing himself in the whole Bible. Or, as I said, uh, just as people are coming in, it's how God organizes our devotion. How, how are we to organize our devotion towards God? How is that to be set up? How are we to do that? How is that supposed to be? Are we worshiping God in the right way? Are we doing the right thing? Are we doing them in the right order? And that's the idea, the orientation of this whole deal. This bucket theology, how God organizes our devotion. So sometimes called systematic theology. Sometimes, well, let me just see. This is there another term for that? Systematic theology. What's another with? What's another term for that? So I'm just testing the theology nerds here to see if you have any other name. Sometimes it's called dogmatic theology. Dogmatic. And that's not because, oh, well, you're a jerk. You're so dogmatic. No, it's not that idea. Dogmatic means dogma is just a, simply a term for teaching. It's organized teaching. And so that's what we're going to do. So above all, the point is we need, we need these buckets. We need these buckets. And I don't even think I got quite to the, to the Sinclair Ferguson conclusion regarding the buckets having seen this guy who loved ephesians and thought ephesians was great and yet couldn't tell sinclair ferguson what ephesians was about because he had no buckets no categories ferguson concluded that what had happened is and what happens to all of us and this is what i've seen over the years is we can receive the benefits of the word of god even let's say on a Sunday morning, say Pastor Josh Carey or former Pastor Josh Carey, I guess, preached on Sunday. And if you were here, you heard this wonderful sermon from the Word of God, and it's as if the rain was falling. But what happens? The rain falls on the ground, all of a sudden, it's gone. Because you got no buckets to, to hold it in. You don't really, you can't really retain it. And my guess is, if you're like me, you aren't thinking about these categories, then by Sunday afternoon, if not by Monday morning, you've pretty much forgotten how to situate that sermon into your life and into all of God's work and ways. And so you need to have these categories. You need to have these buckets to, to put things in. So that's the intention. We need buckets well i'm going to pray as we start and then i'm going to introduce our time by looking at a 
at a familiar psalm. So now that we're somewhat settled, I think, except for just a couple in the back, I'm going to pray. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word, as we think about our need to organize our minds and, the, and for us to actually have our thoughts and our affections reordered after your ways and your way of ordering life, I pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would guide us, that you would protect us, and that you would help us to think your thoughts after you. Help us to, to do this now for your glory, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, turn in your Bibles. If you got your Bibles, you got your phone, you got something, turn to Psalm 16. Psalm 16, verse 11 might even be a, a verse that is a, a theme verse for you, a memorized verse. Maybe somebody would offer to read Psalm 16, 11, nice and loud. Psalm 16, 11. You got to be super loud, though, down here. Okay. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures. Thank you. Now, the key here that I want us to see is that this is not something from the Declaration of Independence in the U.S. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is something where God is the one who makes something known. How many of you have encountered someone who they say, oh, well, it's, it's fine to talk about God, but how can you claim to know who he is? God would be so big and vast. How can you claim to know anything about him? But maybe if God is so great and so vast and so awesome, he has the ability and power and capacity to make himself known. What parent here has not gone through it with your kids where they will act like they don't understand you? And yet you as a parent have very clearly had the capacity to make yourself known to them, right? And then if they disobey, they get in trouble, right? <laughs> because you made yourself very clear to them. They can't play dumb. They knew exactly what was going on. You have, you make known to me the path of life. It is not a case that it is unknown. It is not a case that it can, it's unknowable. But I, actually, God makes it known to the one who follows him. And so that in his presence, there is then this fullness of joy. This joy that God has in himself and that he chooses to share. That's the nature of his presence. He chooses to share it so that at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Well, how can, how can he say that? How can he say there's pleasures forevermore? Isn't he like every created being that comes to an end? No, but he is God. He is God. He's something distinct, something other. So all of these issues come into play as we think about our need to understand God and how God wants to organize our devotion to him. 
And we start off by seeing that he is the one who makes it known. This is not a not we're not involved in some kind of process of self discovery because the, because when we get into this there's kind of a question of why why and why bother why bother why should we even bother why come out why come out wednesday night why bother why bother trying to do anything why bother trying to pursue happiness? Why bother trying to pursue meaning? Why bother with any of these things? Why bother? Well, self-discovery is not enough. There's all kinds of people wanting self-discovery, but God is the one who makes it known to me. Meaning in life is futile without transcendence, without the path of life. And God makes it known to us. Even in this city during Stampede, there is a lot of despair. And despair is inevitable without God. And if you don't think there's any despair in this city, just wait till next week. Right? The Stampede crash. And everybody's depressed. And everybody goes back on the pills or whatever they're doing. Because without God, they're not in the presence of God. And so they don't have fullness of joy. And joy is promised forever with God. Fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore, because only God can promise that. So that's why we bother. That's why it's important to consider these buckets. And that's what basically, and, and why bother for me? Like, why should I do this? Why bother doing this study? Well, the reason is because I feel this group, this church at this stage in its growth, some of you have been, you know, coming to this church going way back, you know, over a decade or more. Some of you have only been here maybe, maybe a few, a few months. Okay. Thankfully it's not my phone. <laughs> Somebody else's problem. Um, and yet I see that the amount of information that everybody has coming at them Nobody's able to organize it. Nobody's able to prioritize what's important and what isn't. They're not able to filter it. They're not able to retain what should be retained in a good bucket. And instead, they're getting swept away with various cross currents and floods. Right? Right? I mean, if I was to recommend a book to you, my guess is you're not even going to read the book because everybody's listening to a different podcast, right? And if I go to this table, the podcasts they're listening to are different than the podcasts at that table and this table and that table and or, or whatever your media is that you're consuming. It's all different and you're being tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine or wave. And so that's why I wanted to do this. So to help us in this, we're going to go uh, not just because I was in the Netherlands, but we're going to actually go back to some good old Dutch theology and use a tool uh, from a guy named Louis Burkhoff, uh, 1873 to 1957. Louis Burkhoff has a classic systematic theology. So a, a bucket theology, that's all it is. It goes through the topics of theology. Now, Louis Burkhoff, he's he has a number of things that I don't agree with, but He's got a number of things that I do. He would 
hold to infant baptism in a way that I, I do not believe in. Uh, he would hold to a kind of a covenant theology in a different way than I would. And yet at the same time, in the core of all he's doing with the systematic theology, he is what would be called a Calvinist, and he would be reformed. Now, if I say, use the term Calvinist, what does that mean? Somebody tell me what a Calvinist is. Okay, what does that mean? That 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 was actually more obscure. So so you you started. Okay, go ahead. What 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 are you doing with that? You you mentioned a flower. What what does that have to do? With? Netherlands. Okay, so so you're giving kind of the so-called five points of Calvinism in this handy acronym for a Dutch flower. Yeah. Okay. So Tulip. That's the idea. And and why why Calvinist? Why Calvinist? Yeah, okay. So at named after John Calvin. Yeah. So just we're just making sure we're kind of keeping up all on the same page. Because some people here be like, oh yeah, I've read through Burkhoff three times. And there'd be other people here like, uh, I, I'm not sure what this systematic stuff you're talking about is. And if you're in any of that spectrum, it's okay. Because my guess is the ones that have read through Burkhoff lots, you're actually kind of uneven. And the people that haven't kind of delved into this, you're right where you need to be. So what we're going to do is I'm going to try, I'm going to make an attempt weekly to teach through, there's essentially six major topics. Uh, six major topics. We're going to teach through them on Wednesday nights uh, as best we can. I might have to skip one week, but then we'll 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 adjust accordingly. And then what I want after each reading or after each class, there's going to be then a section of reading from the book. Now we've got books on order, but we also are going to be able to give you Louis Burkhoff's summary of Christian doctrine. It's called, and it's a PDF online that's freely available, so you can at least read along, and then it's got scripture memory at the end of each chapter, so you can go through that. Now, just to encourage you, Burkhoff wrote his systematic theology, which is, you know, it's his major work. Then he thought, well, that's too much, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it thinner, and I'm going to write the manual of Christian doctrine. It's going to be aimed at high school students. And then he kind of like, uh, okay, I need to break this down one more. So he, so he made this summary of Christian doctrine, and that's what we're that's what we're going to work on. That, that, okay, but actually, it's really good. I think I think it's excellent. It's concise, and that's that's what I want. So so just so then you know what we're trying to do here. Some of you might some of you might have your pet doctrines, and you're hoping that we will come. You'll be able to come here, and you will have all of the itches for your pet doctrine scratched. And I'm just here to disappoint you because this is introductory. The idea is actually not to actually understand one bucket in isolation, but to understand how they all go together. And so there's going to be things that you might be more familiar with. And there's going to be things you're going to be less familiar with. And the whole goal is to actually grow in all of it. And so what I'll be doing is giving more exhortations and some of even some of my own emphases that I like to make in terms of thinking through these doctrines. So we haven't even got to our kind of first uh, our first 
doctrine and our first kind of introduction yet, but this is kind of the introduction to the whole the whole project that we're in here with our buckets. So with that, any any questions? If you got a question, yeah, you got to raise your hand and you got to speak really loud because we got a big group here. And thank you for coming. It's great to see so many people. Got a question about what we're doing? Questions at this point? You're still here. You're not getting up to leave. So that's great. It's always encouraging. Okay. Well, we're going to start. So tonight, then, launching in formally, and you should be able to take your hand out and flip it over, and you're going to see this, this little picture. And you know, you've seen it before, right? It's probably one of the most famous, famous uh, pieces of, of art ever created by Michelangelo, Creation of Adam, 1508-1512. And here then you have then the attempt of a man to create something that represents what God has done in creation. Now, also like to set up, just putting ourselves in context, I just came back from France and and one of the guys that used to tour around the area that we were, where we were, is Ernest Hemingway. And Ernest Hemingway, he said, all thinking men are atheists. Was that true? Don't if you say it's true, then we've got to kick you out of here. No, Actually, if you say it's true, welcome. Glad you're here. We're gonna to try to change your mind. And and Ernest Ernest Hemingway, Ernest Hemingway, you know, we see the you know the, the end result with his life, how tragic it was. But that's kind of a mentality. It's a mentality probably in your workplace, people you know in your family, that the that the more sophisticated you are, the more that you would be secular and be an atheist. Um, try to do a little pop culture, REM. My kids don't know who REM is. If you don't know, that means you're not as old as me. And yeah, they're just a pop band in the 90s. Every whisper every of every waking hour, I'm choosing my confessions. Well, there's a there's a sense in which that's what our whole culture is awash in. Everybody's choosing their own confession. They're choosing their own religions. They're losing their religion and then picking up new ones all over the place. You don't you don't want to be a certain gender anymore. Just drop it and become something else. You don't want to be affiliated with some ideology. You just drop it and pick up another one. But Psalm 96 verse 9 says, Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. That's what we need to recapture. And that's why also I have a little bit of the concern of why bother. I think we need to recapture worshiping the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Because in your mind, if I say the word holy, I don't think you connect on the other side with the word beauty. I don't I think when you hear holy you think restriction and you don't think beauty right and yet the beauty of holiness is what our world needs they need to see the goodness of God in his holiness and if you mention holiness with its definition and with its clear lines and the separateness of God and the specialness of God they don't like that so that's why they don't like it I think that's what 
what's needed. Now, first off, thinking about religion. Religion, again, just starting off in terms of thinking about these buckets. Everybody is religious. I'm going to give you a couple of texts. So Psalm 14, verse 1. You can look it up. You maybe, maybe know it. The fool says in his heart, what? There is no God. Okay? So now, why is, why is he foolish? He says there's no God, but everybody's religious. Of course he knows there's a God. Psalm or Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 says how people suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Does that mean they don't know the truth? No, it means they know the truth is there and they're intentionally suppressing the truth. So they're inherently religious. They're choosing to suppress the truth. And of course, Romans 1.19 for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to him through the things that have been made. Why do people drive out to Canmore and Banff every weekend? Why? It, you know, it, it, you know they, they drive out there to worship the mountain. At the very least, they go out there for the transcendence of the mountains because they're religious, because people are made to worship. There's a sense in which Homo sapiens can be described as Homo liturgicus, the worshiping person, the worshiping being. We know from Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The language for work, work and keep. They are the terms in Hebrew that were also associated with the work of a priest. So when you think of Adam in the garden, he's not just a gardener. And you might be a gardener and you think, oh, yeah, it's really cool that Adam was a gardener. It's so cool. But actually, it's Adam working as a priest. And that's how human beings were designed. They were to work like a, he was to work like a priest, to protect like a king. The Latin ora et labora, work and prayer. And so this is fundamental then, when we're thinking about our buckets, when we're thinking about our categories, it's fundamental to understand the world. Because the world is not simply made up of a sociology of religions, a horizontal view of all these different groups of people and tribes of people and religious people and these groups. We get into this question, what is an evangelical? You've maybe seen this even in the United States. Oh, yeah, I got to stay close to this thing. Um, in the United States, I found it interesting with, with Trump's election and then with Biden's, you had people speaking about the evangelicals, the evangelicals for Trump, for example, I'll just use it as an example. Well, they were describing things sociologically in terms of a group that's gathered together. They were not describing in terms of what people actually believe. Because from my view, some of the people associated in the evangelicals in support for Trump, they're heretics. 
So they're not evangelicals. Paula White's not an evangelical. She's a heretic. You know, so, so, but that's what happens when we don't understand the true nature of religion, a theology of religions among sinners after Genesis 3. So with the fall of man in Genesis 3, we're still all religious. Why do people cheer on the chuck wagons? Just as base as that. Why do they cheer it on? Because they want to participate in some kind of glory. Even the, you know, pretty hackneyed glory of a chuck wagon race, right? It's, I mean, it's not that super special, you know, but people want to participate in that because they're religious beings. Why is the stampede in existence? It's a religious festival of a type. And so we have to understand that, that there's no getting away from religion. So that's kind of then setting it up. Anybody, anybody you agree, disagree with that assessment? Just let's wake you up and see, make sure. Don't speak ill of the stampede. <laughs> so that's, that's the first bucket you're starting to kind of craft here is then to start thinking and understanding human beings as religious beings. Okay, and then you start seeing all this stuff in religious terms. Now, Burkhoff is going to have three categories. Just we're still just kind of introductory, but he's going to look at the nature of religion, the seat of religion, and the origin of religion. Those three: the nature, the seat, and the origin of religion. So. What is the nature of religion? Well, Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we are oriented as homo sapiens. We ought to have the fear of the Lord. It's interesting that I've been criticized at different times over the years for some of my emphasis. But one of my emphasis in my teaching has been that the person who does not believe in Jesus Christ does not come, come at these things with a neutrality, but rather they are already an, uh, uh, under an obligation to believe in God. They're under an obligation to fear the Lord before they even start. So I don't have to come kind of mealy mouth hoping that I can show that the gospel is good enough for them to accept. It is good. And it, it ought to be, and I should say, this is really good stuff. But I don't have to somehow prove it to them as if then they're, they're in this neutral judgment position because they ought to fear the Lord. That's the nature of religion. We're oriented to fear the Lord. That was, of course, Adam's failure. Adam didn't fear the Lord, who did he fear? He feared his wife, and he feared the serpent. And he gave them the respect and fear and awe, and, and, and he was a little bit scared, and he was concerned with what they said and what they were going, rather than concerned 
and in awe and even a bit of fear towards God. He should have been oriented that way. So that's the nature of it. Now, as far as then this religion, or we would maybe use the term spirituality. Where is it seated? Where is it, where is it grounded? Where is the seed of it? Well, it would be in the whole person. It's in the whole person. Burkhoff says, in Scripture, in, I should say, in Scripture psychology, this is his phrase, Scripture psychology, the heart is the central organ of the soul. Out of it are all the issues of life, thoughts, feelings, and desires. And of course, Proverbs 4.28, out of it flow the issues of the heart. So, so that's why if you're in a church that's dealing only in externals and doesn't deal with your heart, then it's actually never going to have true religion because it's not getting to the seat of true religion, true spirituality. It's all just going to be around these externals. No, no, it's got to get to the, where this scripture psychology is to the heart, the central organ of the soul. You know, that's a question. I mean, maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit too, too intense. If you walk up to somebody after the service in the foyer and you go to them and say, how's the state of your soul? You know, maybe a little bit much. But really, that's kind of what we're getting at. We're wanting to deal in the issues of the soul. So that's the seat is in the heart. And then the origin comes here. So Perkoff says, the Bible gives the only reliable account of the origin of religion or spirituality. It informs us of the existence of God, who is the only object worthy of religious worship. And it comes to us with the assurance that God, who man could never discover with his natural powers, God revealed himself in nature and more specifically in his divine word. And as a result, he demands worship. He demands the service of man. And he also determines the worship and he determines the service that is well-pleasing to him. You can't worship God in your own way. You can't serve God in your own special way. You have to worship and serve God according to the way he has said it ought to be done. And finally, this divine source of, of religion, this origin, teaches us that God created man in his own image and thus endowed him a capacity to understand, to respond to, and to, to engage with this revelation. And so then it engendered in then this man then a natural urge to seek communion with God and to glorify him. So that's the orientation. It comes from the heart. If I didn't believe this, I don't know if I'd be in, I don't know if I'd be a pastor. Because it'd be too discouraging to see the numbers of people who come in the church and go out of the church and just think it's dependent on me 
to somehow stir up religious feelings in them. But instead, I'm encouraged by the fact that a person created in the image of God, yet a sinner, yet fallen, they're, they're oriented, they're designed to seek the Lord. Now, they don't seek the Lord because of sin. But the intention is that they are made to be a worshiper. They're made to go to God. That's the best fit. Sin blocks that. And then I just want to come and say, hey, I've got a message for you that deals with your sin so that you can get to where you're supposed to go. You can get to God. And that's kind of that's kind of what we want to get to then when we see the nature of this religion, the nature, seat, and origin of this spirituality. So that's kind of getting us into then some of the kind of groundwork of how we can even be talking about these buckets. How can we even be here with the why bother? It's because you are here, I'm here, and we are worshiping beings. Any questions on that before we move into Revelation? Not the book of Revelation, although that might be part of it. You, that Maybe that's what you were hoping for the whole time. We're going to get in general and special revelation. Any questions on that? Okay, I'm going to do this then. I'm going to change it up. I want you to take three minutes and talk in your tables about an example of seeing this kind of worship and religiousness going on with someone that you know that's there, but they're not worshiping in the right way, and yet they're still being religious or worshiping in some way. Take three minutes, talk in your table, go. Okay, you gotta you gotta talk to each other.
Okay, lots of religious examples. I want a religious example from that table back in the back corner. This is a religious example. Yeah, they even wear the priestly gear, don't they? Yeah, especially those oiler priests. I will take shots at Oilers all day. I, I don't care. Uh, one more back there, back there table. Yeah, yeah. You bet. You stuck your hand up, Ray. So yeah, yeah, I know. I know. It's good. It's good. Now you got it. Now you got to answer. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Taking on. It's got religious features. Yeah. So so understanding that clarifies. Then it's so it's not. When you're, we're talking with people, whether it's sports or whether it's policies or politics or or just whatever they're giving themselves to, then understand that they're religious beings, they're worshiping beings, and and it's not it's not merely oh they don't have enough education or haven't had enough information. It's actually that there's an issue of the heart. Their heart is oriented to worship what ought not to be worshipped, and they don't want to worship the true God that they should worship. So actually, they're fundamentally sinning in that. But of course, then sports or politics or whatever it might be can be redeemed when you're seeing them as under God. You're worshiping God first and seeing all these other things, even elements of the stampede, as a gift of God's common grace. Not all of it, but you can see some of it. Okay, so you've kind of got the wheels turning. Now, I want us to think about Revelation. Not the book of Revelation. And it's not Revelations. The book of Revelations, that's always a giveaway. You know, when you hear somebody say Revelations, you know, that you think they're a politician or somebody hasn't read the Bible. Um, but Revelation is the idea of simply God uncovering things about himself. Revealing. Choosing to uncover things that he wants to make known to other people. And I think the most a, a useful analogy 
to start off with is one that's been used by theologians through the centuries. Uh, in particular, Jonathan Edwards used it quite often. And it's just the, just the idea of the sun. God is like the sun. And the rays of the sun, he chooses then to reveal himself. Now, because of in his economy, there's things about which he then lets through. He lets them through to be revealed even to the person here. So by the time those rays get to this person here, well, that's not the totality of all of God's shining, all of his brilliance, all that it is. So we see in very limited ways. However, when you get the word of God, God is actually giving us a peak inside above the clouds. And you get to see more of what God's revealed. But even then, you still don't know all that God is and all that he has, just like you can't go and stare into the blazing hot sun. You'd just be nuked, right? So it'd be helpful then to see and recognize that there are things that God has made known to us that he wants us to know, and then there are things that he has chosen not to reveal to us. So just off the top of your head, what's something God has not chosen to reveal to you at this point? Mark? We don't know why he keeps this faith some and not other. Yeah, so so yeah, why why are some saved and some aren't? We don't there's mysteries there. Okay. Another yeah, with Christ's return. We don't know the day or the hour. Yeah. What else? Let me back there. Oh, okay, yeah. What else? Even something, you know, even more simple. Future. Future. Like, as in tomorrow. Like, I, you know, we don't even know if it's going to rain or not tomorrow. We don't know anything. You watch the forecast and it doesn't, it doesn't come true. What's that? Our own death. We don't know. Yeah. So there's all these things about which God has not told us specifically. They are obscured up high. They're too high for us. We don't know. There's things about the mystery of the Trinity, the one God in three persons, that they're just like within the limits of our capacity. We can't know. Talking to uh, Muhammad at the Roman's Pizza just down the street, sharing the gospel with him. Of course, Muslim guy, he's, you know, well, yeah, you you guys believe in the Trinity. You know, he thinks it's nuts. He says, I'm a simple man. I need a simple God. Yeah, okay, fine. But then who's defining God? It's the simple man. And all of a sudden, it's not the true God. And, the, and yeah, it fits nicely in your pocket to have this one God who is monolithic. But it's not, it's not the God of the Bible. Okay, so, so we're starting to see then God has revealed some things. And there are other things he hasn't. Now, one of the terms that we get... You've heard this. People will say 
I'm an, I'm an agnostic. You know, they'll say, oh, I'm not an atheist. I think there is a God. You just can't know him or you can't know which God is right. And the problem with this is that if God has made these things known to you, you are under obligation to heed them because he has made it known. And if he's made it known, he expects you to follow it. And when somebody says, yeah, I don't understand it all way up here. So I'm just going to throw up my hands and not bother doing anything. And there's so many people do that. because they don't have it all figured out. They're like, oh, I'm not going to give myself to it. I'm not going to follow. Actually, you can even get this in the church. Well, unless I understand what everything's going on in the church, I'm not going to commit to this church. Yeah, well, I mean, that's not how you live life. You have to step forward. But God has revealed things. That to which you're under obligation. So this is this is how it works. First John 1 verse 5. God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. He is light. So we experience his light as he shines upon us. If he doesn't permit us to be shined upon. And he leaves us in darkness. We cannot see as I was preparing this I was thinking that we need an absolute recovery of the of the belief in and the doctrine of the lostness and blindness of man like we kind of are all all of us a little bit scared because oh well society doesn't like us they don't like us yeah so we think they're so clever and we've got to kind of be be outsmart them yeah, but they're lost. They've got the problem. They're lost. They're blind. They think they're clever. They're blind. And it's because God has blinded them. Think of that. But this is how revelation works. God reveals certain things to all people. And there are special things that only his miraculous grace permits us to see. When he removes the blindness from our eyes... When he removes, when he removes the clouds from our sky, he chooses to take those away. He removes them and he lets us gaze more directly into the blinding holiness of the sun because he's revealed. You, you know, have you ever thought about it? Why did Jesus, why did the sun take on humanity? And come in the manger and take on human flesh. Well, in part, it's because how could you ever look upon God otherwise? How, how could you? You couldn't. The Old Testament tells us you could not. If you looked upon God, you would die. So how can you look upon God? Well, if God chooses to add humanity to himself, then you can look upon God and not die. Because he's so pure. But that's also God's revealing of himself to us first corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6 among the mature we do impart wisdom although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age we're doomed to pass away i mean first corinthians 2 is verse 7 you can just jot this down but we impart a secret up here secret and hidden wisdom of god which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age, they're down here, 
None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Right? They're down here. They don't understand because they're blind. God, through his apostles, was imparting a secret wisdom. So that's kind of framing a little bit what's going on with this general and special revelation, as it's called. So if I say general revelation, so there's these two categories now, general revelation, what am I talking about? Anyone? Okay, natural revelation. And what's a, what's described that for me? What does that, what does that mean? It's like the things we can know and understand about God just by looking at the world he's created around us. Yeah, yeah. So you can see things from creation as we saw earlier in romans chapter one there's a certain testimony of what has already been created there's things about which god can be known things about god that can be known from what has been created so that's that's in a general sense that's what all people can know and understand uh you know for example i mean this is just a you know kind of a practical one today Every person you meet knows and understands that men are men and women are women. They know that. They, they know that clearly because it's been revealed to them through general revelation that that is so. And it's also not just in human beings, but they also understand it in the animal world, which God created. So they know that. They choose to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But they know it already by general revelation. So we don't even need to get them to the Bible for them to know and understand that one. That's very clear. Uh, Burkhoff says this. While Pelagians, rationalists, and deists regard this revelation, that is general revelation, as adequate for our present needs, Roman Catholics and Protestants are agreed that this is not sufficient. It was obscured by the blight of sin resting on God's beautiful creation. The handwriting of the creator was not entirely erased, but became hazy and indistinct. And that's why people, they'll go out to the mountains and they'll have a sense that, yeah, God must have made this because of general or natural revelation. They'll have a sense of that. But it will not lead them to worship the true living God in the right way. They still need something more. Um, now, there's a lot of people, though, they'll, they'll think, oh, well, I'll, I'll use a personal example. I know a, a cowboy, uh, he's passed on now. Now he'll know. Uh, but he, anyways, he, he used to say, my, my church, my church is out in the hills. It's out in the hills. Well, he had no interest in Jesus Christ. He had no interest in the gospel. But he wanted to be able to state that he had some type of religious worship going on. And so he would say when he rides out in the hills, well, that's that's his church. And he would he's affirming general revelation. But what he got wrong was thinking that general revelation was sufficient to help him to stand before God, a holy God, the true God, the majestic God. And there's tons of people, especially in this town, that think like that. They think that just because they maybe kind of vaguely acknowledge God, 
and say, yeah, God made this stuff or what's God doing or the man upstairs or whatever, they, however they say it, then they think that that's enough and it's not. It's not sufficient. Um, now, Burkhoff will argue that there are certain elements even in the world's religions that will then speak to then some of these true things. Like we say, like even, even the worship of the chuck wagon races, there is this sense that it's appropriate to enter into the glory of another. That's appropriate. Now it's all twisted when it's just some, you know, chuck wagon driver from Southern Alberta. Like it's not a lot of glory there. Um, it, it doesn't make sense. But that, but it's because of general revelation we see these things. Acts 14, 16. Acts chapter 14 says this, verse 16. In past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. You ask the question, what about the person who's never had the Bible? Well, he, God has not left himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. This witness is God's testimony about himself that is available or recognized by all people. Another little quick story. So I've studied a little bit about uh, the Christian, the Christian conversions among First Nations native folks before confederation in Canada, which nobody talks about. There's all kinds of native folks that came to faith in Christ. So it's, it's you know, there's there's native guys believing in Jesus before my family came here. Okay. So now one of these guys was was this Cree chief named Miskipatoon. If you've heard me talk about him before, you'll you'll know the story. But he actually led a scouting party and he came across this Methodist missionary who gave him a Cree Bible. And he was like so many native guys. They'd heard about this book. They heard about this book, this book with wings. They wanted this book. Would somebody bring them this book? They didn't have the book, but they knew that they needed the book. They had the general revelation. They worshipped all the stuff as a worshipping being, but it wasn't enough. And they knew they needed the book. And then when he got the book, he read the book. And there's a little, little vignette of this guy later in his life. The missionary shows up, and what's he doing? Miskipatoon's sitting there reading the Bible. What's he reading? He's reading Romans chapter 8, probably what you read in your devotions this morning. Precious chapter for any Christian. You meditate on Romans 8. That's what he was reading. So he's a real, he's a real deal. But he needed the book. He needed something more than the general revelation. Last, last verse on general revelation, Romans 1.20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are what? Without excuse. No excuses. No excuses. Oh, well, I didn't know. So I, you know, I didn't know it was God that made the mountains. You know, you you know, there's babies in the back 
you know, you see that baby for the first time, you know, I, how can you not? I didn't know that God would create human life so amazing. I just didn't know. No, no, sorry, man. You're without excuse. You're, you can suppress the truth and unrighteousness, but you're without excuse. No excuses. So that's the general revelation. And of course, as they say, we need then the special revelation. Before I move on to that, just any quick question on general revelation, Amelia? Yep. 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 They're still without excuse. Yes. Because we would like to, we, we automatically want to kind of, um, we want to paper over the fact that they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness all that time. And the fact is, of course, all the world, every person, not just in the remote place, but everywhere is under the judgment of God. In other words, nobody deserves to go to heaven. And when you see then that God has been kind enough to provide in Canada, for example, the opportunity to have Bibles printed freely and things on internet and TV and radio freely, then you need to be thankful, oh God, you are so kind and gracious to me, and I do not deserve this. But so, but we get it, we think we're entitled to it. Actually, nobody's entitled. And the person on the island is not entitled, and they're under God's judgment. Now, I think in God's economy, that it it does seem, like I said, with the with Muscipatoon and the natives in Western North America, they heard about the book. And they were told that they need this book. And they were told that they're under judgment without this book. And they, they actually acknowledge the immorality of their own culture. And they say, we need help. And so they were ready when the book came and they believed. And that's actually what you see in many instances. Then when the gospel comes to a people who then they are starting to see their own sin, they're still not saved but they are being prepared, then when they hear the message of the gospel, then, then they believe. And of course, it's only God has to give them then that miracle of faith. But but yeah, I'm I'm not, I don't think it's right or true that you we somehow want to preserve and say, oh, this person on the island, they didn't hear, oh yeah, well, they're gonna go to heaven by some separate way. Sorry, no, it's only through Christ. They're they're under under God's judgment and they they deserve. His wrath. Yeah, uh, so they're they're justified by looking forward through the promises, looking forward in the promises given in the Old Testament. As they look forward and have seen in, in faith, trusting beyond, trusting beyond even the sacrifices. And then Paul will say that it is it is it is upon even this this generation, the new covenant generation, that that's what those Old Testament saints were looking to. That's what he, they were looking forward to. They needed 
this coming of the Messiah to provide the definitive redemption for the Old Testament saints as well as the New Covenant saints. So that's that's where their hope is for those that were really trusting in the Lord, not trusting in their Jewishness or trusting in the trusting in other stuff. Okay, I'm going to press on here because then we need to get to special revelation, special revelation. You got in your your little hand out there, Burkoff. Give give a little quote there. Burkoff says that's LB Louis Burkoff. Uh, he he says the character of special revelation. This special revelation of God is a revelation of redemption. It reveals the plan of God to, for the redemption of sinners and of the world, and the way in which this plan is realized and so for example you know john 4 verse 22 jesus and the samaritan woman he says to her you worship what you do not know you worship what you do not know we worship what we know for salvation is from the jews you know the story jesus and the samaritan woman do you know what? Do you not understand? Do you know about the Samaritans? Samaritans were part of the Northern Kingdom. They were, they basically, they created their own religion. That's what had happened. Jews had received the special revelation from God, the law and the prophets. The Samaritans had not received the same. What they had done, they in the Northern Kingdom of Israel, they had created their own religion. They had set up golden calves. They had made a new place of worship. It was all kind of political. They didn't want people going down to Jerusalem and worship at the true place because then that would break loyalty with their northern kingdom. So they corrupted the religion, the true religion of God. Paul said in Romans 9, speaking of the Jews, he said, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. You say, well, why the Jews? I don't know why. It's God's free choice. God's, let's use this phrase, God's free will. Everybody talks about free will, but they don't like to talk about God's free will. He freely chose. Why the Jews? I don't know, but he did. He chose them. He set his special love and affection on them. And it was a special love and affection he did not put on everybody else. You're like, that's not fair. It's not about fair. If it was fair, everybody would be nuked. Right? Right? We're, again, we're, we, don't like, we don't like that idea. We don't like that idea. But then, of course, we've got low views of our own sin. We've got our low views of what we actually deserve. But if we knew what we deserve, then you see, ah, if he chooses to put his special love on some, well, if you are one of those people, what a privilege. And if you're not, wouldn't you just beg God, would you please give him mercy anyways? Please, 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 please. Not, hey, how come I'm not chosen? Right? Which is more in our, our attitude in North America. So 
That then we see, that's a special revelation in terms of God's, I, I'll even say, this is this gets to be kind of particular. This is going to be too small for people reading. This is, there's, there's a special revealing. It's a special revealing, taking the clouds away. He's letting more come in, but it's particular. He's letting these beams of light go on these people at this time. It's special. And then that brings us then to Scripture. There's there kind of is special revelation, specific instances such as revelations that have been given to prophets, that have been miracles. But generally, when we talk about special revelation, we're talking about the whole the whole of what God wants us to specifically know. The whole, the whole, the whole thing. It is complete. So 2 Timothy, everybody go there. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. You should know it. You should know the verse. I know we're a little over. We'll go for another, maybe about 10 minutes. I'll have 10 minutes of questions. And if you got to leave, you can, you can bolt. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. So you're, you're familiar with these verses. Just I just want you to read them yourself, and I'm going to read them out. And just think about them for a second, what, what actually is being said there. Think about it. The first word in, that, in 2 Timothy 3.16, and you can remember it, right? Because 3.16, like John 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16, you'll remember this. Very key. All I think all the English translations start with the word all. All. Very important word. All scripture. All scripture. This is debated. This has been debated for about a, I mean, at least 150 years. It, oh yeah, scripture is inspired, but not all of it. Only select portions. Only the religious, super, super duper religious portions are inspired. And the stuff that talks about history or science or other stuff, well, it's not inspired. No, no, it says all scripture, all. So right off the bat, when you're talking with your friends or if you're going to school and you're taking your first year of UFC, University of Calgary religion class, and they're saying, oh, yes, the Bible, it has this sort of an inspiration, supposedly, according to its own myth. You just know eh, all scripture, whatever is qualified, whatever's going to happen with this all scripture, it's all of it. It's not some, it's not part of it. It's not select categories of it. It's all of it. All scripture is breathed out by God. And that actually is the is the good translations the greek word is theopneustos and and it is oh yeah my it's theopneustos and it is it is that sense it is god breathed it's not merely the the idea of being inspired but it's spired it's from god it's spirated from god it's breathed out it's from god himself and then it has a description about some of the attributes of Scripture. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, 
for training and righteousness, that the man of God may have 20% of what he needs. No, no. That he may be complete, equipped for every good work. So there is nothing more that's required. Here it is. It's all there. Now, now this, so, okay, so it's just, you know, two verses, but they're your go-tos. And when you get doubting about scripture and, and most simple Christians, they don't doubt scripture, but then you get talking to kind of the big heads and then they tell you, oh, well, you need to have a more sophisticated view of scripture. You know, you have to have a more sophisticated view and they'll say, well, not all, when it says all, it doesn't mean all. No, you can trust what the Bible says. This is the Bible's own testimony about itself. That's, you should, you know, instead of you imposing your view on it, why don't you take what the Bible's view of itself is? Hebrews 6.18 tells us that God cannot lie. God cannot lie. So, in terms of then the integrity of Scripture, if if it is breathed out by God and God cannot lie, think of the logic here. If that's the case, then this special revelation cannot be false. And you know when you'll start thinking that the Bible is false? You'll start thinking it's false when you want it to be false. You'll start thinking it's false when you want to start doing things the Bible says you can't do. You'll start thinking it's false when you simply don't want to follow the Bible anymore. I've been, I've had so many conversations. I've been through all the arguments. I've read the liberals. I've read the higher criticism. I've been through it all. And when people come to me and it's all the same arguments, we go through the same articles and the same references and the same scholarly works, we go through it all. At the end of the day, I always know, and it always comes out later on, that somebody deep down just simply does not want to do what the Bible says. That's the issue. And that's why you all and me, we all have to be very, very careful about the seat of religion, we said before, our heart. Because you can then come and start having all these sophisticated intellectual arguments about Scripture, or about whatever, about God, about the buckets. But your heart doesn't want to obey. And then you find the arguments to fit your own lusts and desires afterwards. But God cannot lie. So if you have to, you're dealing with God, you ought to deal with God. He doesn't lie. He cannot lie. So if he's revealed himself in his word, his word doesn't lie. So it doesn't matter what you think. Whatever he has made known is for you to know, and he doesn't lie. That's why you can bank your life on it. So that's that's then kind of the the backdrop to the inspiration of scripture. Now, how is the scripture inspired? Well, 
how is he how is it God breathed like practically? How does it go from God to human authors to this 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 text, this codex? How does it how does it get there? Well, I better uh it's better put top list here. Um okay, you've seen enough of the window and the dude there. And you got that figured out, right? Hey, there's 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 a thought. Is it mechanical? Is it mechanical? Is it that that God just uses people like a tool and there's no personality of the person involved? That's what some people think. It's false. It's not mechanical. By the same token, it's not dynamic. It's not dynamic. What do I mean by that? It's it's not dynamic in the sense that the writers are inspired, but the writings are not inspired. Okay? That's false too. People say, oh yeah, yep. Bible authors, they're inspired just like a poet might be inspired. Full of inspiration. Yes. Profound thoughts. But when it comes to the Bible itself, the text, oh, well, that, no, we can't say that's the word of God. No, those are both wrong. Those are both wrong. You need to be aware of them. But rather, you can just, we can just say it's organic. These are Burkhoff's terms. It's organic in the sense that God, again, he makes it known, makes himself known. So both the writer and the finished product is exactly what God intended. That includes any editorial work. I know you took a first year university class and you know there's editorial work in some of the books. You think, oh, oh, I didn't know there was editing going on the Bible. My, my faith is so shook. No, God superintends the editing. My friend Ian Valancourt teaches down at Heritage Seminary, teaches on the Psalms. He speaks of the divine superintendence of all the authorship of all the psalms but it's a collection and it is sovereignly superintended even in the editorial work for the final form it's all under god's sovereignty it's even down to the words in the original language in hebrew aramaic and greek then some of the elements of scripture we can even call them the, the perfections of Scripture are these attributes. What is Scripture like? How does Scripture reveal God's perfections? How are they displayed in it? There's about four here. The first is Scripture possesses its own authority. That's how awesome Scripture is. It possesses its own authority. It's not dependent on the Roman Catholic Church as they teach. The Bible has its own authority. The Bible is true whether you believe it or not. It's got its own authority. It doesn't need you or me to prop up its authority. It has its own authority. That's the first thing. Number two, the Bible is a necessary means of grace. If you have the Bible, I'll say this. I mean, I just want to be careful about personal anecdotes. I came to faith in Christ, not in the church. 
I came to faith in Christ reading the Bible and listening to the Bible preached on the radio. And that's where I got saved. I was I, There was nobody else around. It was the Word of God and the Spirit of God. It was the authority of the Scriptures. I'd had ch I had church connection, but it was not directly through the church. Now, that's not saying I should have stayed disconnected from the church. The Bible tells me to be a part of the church. But that's different than saying that the church was of necessity. The Bible is, ne is necessary. The church is, is an addition to that. But also, I did. It's, it's, the Bible is, is necessary, and I didn't have to have some spectacular spiritual experience either. Burkhoff would, would speak to both these, Roman Catholics or the radical Anabaptists. In both extremes, they got it wrong. You didn't need the church as well, and you don't need some spectacular spiritual experience. You just need what the Word says. Third, the Bible is clear and understandable because God made it so. And you say, yeah, but there's all kinds of stuff I don't understand. Yeah, it's not equally understandable. There are things that take work, and there are things that are limited for us to understand. But we can sort through the various levels and degrees by which it is clear or not clear. But on the whole, people through the centuries, they've written lots of commentaries and lots of books about the Bible because there are things that can be known about it. It's knowable. The big $50 theological term for that is perspicuity. The perspicuity. I'll write it down here. You can impress people at work tomorrow. <laughs> and that just means it's perspicuous. No, it means it's clear. It's under it's it's understandable, more specifically. It's understandable. Now, is it as understandable? Well, like that's why I went to seminary and learned Greek and I learned Hebrew, so that I could actually understand its clarity even further. So you got to work at it, but it's it, it can be known. Fourthly, the scriptures are sufficient. They're they're complete. The man of God is the King James says thoroughly furnished, thoroughly furnished. Love that phrase, sufficient, which is against the Roman Catholic Church that says, well, we got to add the church in as well, or against the Anabaptist, radical Anabaptist said, you have to have an inner light as well. No, no, the scriptures in and of themselves are sufficient. You don't need to have some special experience. You don't need to have then a prior church structure to then guide you through it. You could actually know the Bible on your own. Now, the Bible is going to lead you to have then growing, transforming spiritual experiences and going to have you be a part of the church, but it isn't necessary on the front end. So that's just a little snapshot at looking at special revelation. I'm going to throw out then some issues and then I'm going to open up for questions. I'm going to throw out, there's a thing called Bardianism. Bardianism. Do I have this in the handout? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Bardianism. Who who who's heard of Karl Barth? Barth. 
Barth. No, that's it makes me want to be sick sometime thinking about Karl Barth. Okay, he's viewed as being one of the brilliant theologians of the 20th century. His problem is, apart from actually we found out some immorality, his problem is, even as he was trying to swing from liberalism to be more conservative, he actually he kind of made the heresy sandwich. You know, it's you know, it's good on that side, and it's good on this side, but in the middle is the lie, you know, squeezed in between. And he said that the Bible is not the word of God. It's not the word of God. It becomes the word of God experientially to you. But as soon as you say that, then you can make the Bible say anything you want it to. Because it is not authoritative anymore. What's authoritative is my experience. And so there, you've got to be very careful, at least in this crowd, because there'll be people that you read... And they will say they're reformed or something. And you don't realize they're actually Bardian. And they actually have a false, insufficient view of Scripture. So you need to be careful about that. This is what's happening when you basically, if I see people advocating in the church in support of the sexual revolution, if I look at their doctrine of Scripture, almost invariably it follows after Karl Barth. Like if I get into the weeds on it, they've got a wrong doctrine of scripture, and it's Bart's view. But connected to this, number two is relativism. It's just basically, uh, I don't know. I this this verse means something different to me, right? What does it mean to you? Eh, it means that this this is what it means to me. It's all relative, and so we've got to. Update the Bible for modern terms rel in a relative way. Well, we can. We have to understand the Bible as originally given because God intended to make it known on God's terms. That's what I hope you're getting tonight. It's understanding things on God's terms, not on our terms. But the third issue today is that just this idea that Scripture is immoral. The Bible is an immoral book. The Bible is discriminatory. We're just getting, we were just kind of getting it. The thought that some people would not go to heaven, it's discriminatory. The Bible's a bad book. It doesn't seem right. The idea that God judges people, the idea that there's a hell, the Bible is immoral. But the problem is, unless you understand God's justice and his law, that's the only way you'll have clarity to understand the message of, message of salvation. It's the only way that you can see grace is amazing. Is if you see that you didn't deserve a lick of it. So that's that's kind of getting into then some of the special revelation. I'm going to I'm going to then open it up to questions and I know I've kind of kept everybody long. If you need to go, you can, but I'm going to open it up for questions for a little bit. And then, uh, and then I'll pray to close. But let's just, let's, you got some questions. Let's let's fire away. We got a free for all on this. Your name? Calvin. Calvin. Great name. Thanks. My understanding lately is that you are arguing that the second Kennedy 
uh, basically says that is not the case, that even the parking lot, you can understand. No, no, that's, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that, that is that with the scriptures, and this is when, when we're talking about the understandability of the scriptures in a saving way is required. You have to have the, you have to have the Holy Spirit. But what I'm saying is that there is not a requirement for some type of specified spiritual experience. That's, that's not added on in this context. So that, that's a different thing. But what we're talking about, we'll get into it when we talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, is the relationship of the Holy Spirit, which, just to be clear, the Holy Spirit is God. God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is the one who takes these clouds away, in my view, who take, who changes the, takes away the heart of stone and gives a heart of flesh. The Holy Spirit is the one who takes away the blindness of the eyes and gives eyes to see, so that then you read the Bible, a Bible maybe you've read many, many, many times. It's written in English. You've read it before, but then you read it for the first time as if it's, you read it for the 50th time as if it's for the first time. It's in a new way. Certainly that was the case for me. It wasn't a spiritual experience. It was different. It wasn't like this special extra thing but what it was is the difference between the work of the Holy Spirit then taking away the clouds. And that is God then choosing selectively, specially, particularly then to allow his written revelation to be known and understood clearly. We actually had the, had the passage a little bit earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And if you read on in that section, it says the spiritual things are spiritually discerned. So good question. Another question? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So, so as a me means of grace is kind of yeah, it's kind of theology lingo, but it's just the idea that it's a it's a tool or an instrument by which God's undeserved favor comes to us. So scripture, how, how do I how do I know God, the one who I want to know? How do I know him? How can I know his grace? Well, I know it through the instrumentality of his word, through knowing his word. And if you say, well, I don't really know God very well. You get to know the Bible, you will know him because that is the means or the channel or the instrument by which then we enjoy his smile. Good question. Would the law fall under special revelation? Well, the law, the law, the law. So it depends what you're talking about. But specifically, the law of Moses is special revelation. Is special revelation given to the Jews distinctly, even though it's it then testified to all that all kind of the standards or the demands that God had established even prior to that of which all peoples were accountable to. So is this special codification, as it were, and further revelation that God intended for Israel specifically, but then, of course, Israel was to be a light to the nations. So it's special revelation, but it reflected then God's, even what God had, had revealed, even in creation and general revelation. So, but I'd say it's, I'd say the, the law of Moses specifically is special revelation. Ready? 
Yeah. Yeah. So, so the key is then when you're, when the key is then read the Bible, you know, these, they're probably the Bible you have is the Bible you should be reading, you know, just as, as opposed, like, as opposed to not reading it. (laughs) You know, that's it. That's the point. Like, like we can get kind of hung up on the translations. Most, most of the, let's, I'll just call them the evangelical Bible translations are, are pretty sufficient. Now, when we get into the weeds of you're trying to draw the lines of doctrine, you're trying to be very specific about certain things. Well, that's when then the translation theory comes into play. But that's also why, as I said earlier, to be clear, we actually need to know the original languages. We actually have to know even the manuscripts from which the earliest and best manuscripts and the collection of manuscripts and how those read. Now that all of our, all of the Bible translations are various philosophies and attempts to do that. But practically speaking, we use it this church. We use English standard version. It's, it's not, it's, it's a, it's a really, really, really good translation. I, I think the King James is one of the most spectacular translations. Unfortunately, language changes dynamically the english language has changed and so if we use the king james it's we might as well be speaking in latin because people just don't understand they're not communicating in that way now we could all learn latin and we could use the latin vulgate if you want or we can all learn greek and we can talk and use the greek bible if you want to do that if you want to do that work we can do that right Because some people say, oh, well, we should just work harder so that we can understand the King James. Yeah, okay, fine. But then why stop there? Let's go further. I like using the King James just because culturally, uh, there's so much stuff, Shakespeare, various things that incorporate it. But as far as communicating in language that real people talk in the way they talk, and that is how the King James and even the Geneva Bible and Tyndale how they spoke. They tried to put it in the way people really talk. Luther and his translation of the German Bible. I saw a first, I saw a first edition of, Ger- of Luther's German Bible when I was in Munster a couple weeks ago. He tried to put it in the language of real people. And that's the intention. You want it in the language of real people, but it has to be faithful to the scriptures as given in a not a, a more of a more of a, a word-by-word equivalence not just a dynamic equivalence, something that's trying to just merely have thought by thought. And that's what you have with ESV. It's got a good good balance that way. So a keen and then here and then back to me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the message, the message is not a translation. You, you guys know what the message is? The late Eugene Peterson he did it as a Sunday school project. He was translate. He translated for his Sunday school class. Translate texts. Um, it's a paraphrase. It's very North American. It's very idiomatic. It's not very. It's not so accurate. It's interesting. It's kind of. It kind of can be interesting at times, but it's it's not a faithful rendering of the text. So it's not something to be used. Amplified Bible. Um, again, you're relying on, it's like reading somebody's commentary. You're relying on somebody else's interpretation of what should be highlighted. Um, so that's what I say. So yeah, don't use them for doctrine. This read this question here. And then Amelia is going to be last. Okay. Question, it's possible to call 
Uh, I don't believe at this point in this in in this place in in God's economy. I don't believe I don't believe you can. I don't believe so because there I don't the the qualification is now that God is then established. I just go to a text here. This is always how this goes. I'll repeat the question. Just give me. I'll I'll, I'll stay here. So the question is: Just correct me if I'm wrong. Is it possible to have special revelation apart from the Bible? Very good question. It's a very good question. Um, revelation twenty-two, verse eighteen says, "I warn everyone." Who hears the prophet? Who hears the words of the prophecy of this book? If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. My view, and I think it's the script. I think it's the Bible's view, is that there is no further special revelation that we can say is on par with scripture. In fact, I don't I don't think it's appropriate to call anything else that someone might claim as coming from God in the category of special revelation. I I think it's inappropriate to put that label on that because nobody nobody has that. This I believe that the scriptures are qualified by the special commission given to the apostles. And when the, when the canon of scripture was closed, then this is all we need. Now, if you say there is special revelation apart from the Bible, you fall into the category of men like Muhammad and Joseph Smith and uh, Amy Semple McPherson. And you know, we make a long, long list of people who are cult leaders who say the Bible is not enough, I have a special revelation, and I'm going to give my own Bible. Or someone who says, no, I'm not going to write my own Bible, but I'm going to say, God told me, and I've got this new revelation, and I've got this new prophecy, and I've got this new thing, and I'm going to tell you this is what God says we're to do. And so that's my view on that. And I would say, so I believe that the canon is closed, and this is the only special revelation. Now, God does lead and guide us, but that's not the same as revelation. And when we put it on the same level as God's special revelation, we are in error, in my view. And I can follow up and talk with you about that after. i got to let Amelia ask her question, and then we're going to close. And I'm going to pray because I've kept you. i kept you guys too late already. So it's a question of it's a question of the canon, canonicity. This is Michael Kruger's book, Can, Canon Revisited, establishing the origins and authority of the New Testament books. This is Peter Williams. Can we trust the Gospels? Not specifically referring to the Apostle Paul, but referring to the Gospels. 
why are why are some things included and others not? Uh, the simple fact is there was a common understanding amongst the apostles about the authenticity and authority of each of their writings. So then there, there was already this acceptance of their writings among the Christian community. It's a falsehood to think, oh yeah, well, later on by a political by a political scheme, some stuff got kept out and some things got put in. Rather, it was the it was the collective church. Everybody knew the stuff that was authentic and the stuff that wasn't. And so, so Paul, nevertheless, Paul is from that point, he's looking back at all the Old Testament and whatever had been written to that point. But it's also qualifying anything that would be included as scripture. Later on, Peter will comment on Paul's own writings and include them when he talks about all scripture and seeing Paul's writings as an apostle are on the par with all the Old Testament writings. So that's a limited answer at this point, but kind of get where I'm going. So he has it in mind, even though the, even the scriptures in the future, though, I believe. So friends, it's been great having you. I'm going to pray to conclude. You can come and ask me questions afterwards. I do hope this has been helpful for you and stimulating. And you can read up on Burkhoff as we get the materials to you. And I hope this is the beginning of a journey where you can start getting your buckets out. And you'll have buckets wherever you go. And if you have buckets wherever you go, you won't lose all of God's blessing that he's been pouring out on you. Let's pray together as we finish. Heavenly Father, oh, we praise you that we can call you Father, that we have that category to call you Abba Father. What a sweet thing it is to come to you that way. And that you have given even your own dear son, this son, the one who took on flesh, the one who lived, who died, who died for sinners, sinners, sinners who didn't deserve any consideration, who was buried, truly buried, testified that he was buried and dead. And yet he rose from the dead on the third day in objective, truthful fact, and that he's ascended into heaven and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. That is something you have revealed to us, Father. You've revealed that Jesus is coming back, although you have not told us the day or the hour. Help us then to live according to your true revelation that we would be worshipers of you according to your Holy Spirit and that you would be pleased and honored by the way that we heed what you say. Help us to do this. Help us to heed your revelation and honor you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for coming. Very encouraging. Great. It's a great welcome back for me. Great to see you all. Hope to see you again.